From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. 6, 50 years ago today, Apollo 11 launched from Cape Kennedy. A few days later, on July 20th of 1969, the first two humans landed on the moon. Commander Neil Armstrong and lunar module pilot Buzz Aldrin. Also at the launch was a film crew documenting everything, from its preparation to mission control to the faces of the crowds witnessing the blastoff. These, mixed with astounding footage taken by Armstrong and Aldrin, came together in a documentary film called Moonwalk One. Released in 1971, Moonwalk One crashed at the box office, but is now considered a cult film that captures what it took to put humans on the moon and is really a time capsule of life on Earth at this groundbreaking moment. GBB will air the documentary this Friday, July 19th at 9 p.m. David Risha is with us to talk about this cinematic moonwalk. He's Assistant Professor of Film Studies at Emory University's Oxford College with a focus on documentary film and aesthetics. Hi, David. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for being here. There were a few other space documentaries coming out around this time, but this film was commissioned by NASA to tell, I guess, the full story of the project. Original plan being a big theatrical release, but it didn't quite work out. Do you know the story there? Yes. So uh, in the mid-1960s, NASA teamed up with MGM to make a theatrical film about the entirety of the Apollo program. Um, and then pretty late in the process, MGM actually pulled out, uh, as did the uh, attached director. So NASA scrambled to put together uh, a crew and also a movie, and they did. Uh, so it's Moonwalk One. And um, and yeah, it it was released. It went to the um, Cannes Film Festival and won an award there, but, but as you mentioned, didn't really make much noise otherwise. Do you think people are just done with space? Yeah, I mean, throughout the entirety of the 60s, people had been, uh, there had been lots of space on television and movies, you know, on TV, there was Star Trek and Lost in Space, uh, among many other TV programs. In uh, in the movies, there was 2001, Barbarella and Marooned, and I mean, just a ton of space stuff. And add that to the fact that, you know, most Americans actually watched it on television. So Something like three quarters of it? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, and, you know, hundreds of millions across the world watched this. So it's an interesting filmmaking problem. How do you make an engaging movie about something that people are incredibly familiar with? And we I think we that, already know the ending. Yes, we do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the final director, Theo Kamek, was brought on just six weeks before the launch. How yes. did he pull it off? I have absolutely no idea. Wow. Uh, you know, in watching the movie, there's some really fantastic parts, but the film seems a little bit uneven. Yeah. And I think that that might be product of its uh, rushed production. So you think that with a film like this, getting to the moon is the climax, but that actually happens pretty early in the film. So that's an interesting structure. Yeah, and I think that that somehow speaks to the fact that people already knew kind of the ending. The structure of the mission is the narrative spine. So the launch, the landing, and then the return. But the for me, one of the most interesting parts is the film's excursions. It looked at how the world was responding to uh, to the moon landing. It also, one of my favorite sequences is um, it looks at the w- older women who uh, who actually sewed the gloves for the space 
um, for the spacesuits, and they talk about you know how they really hope that their particular gloves are the ones that are going to make it to the moon. So I think that they were looking for ways to really broaden the scope of of the documentary. Yeah, let's hear about, from one of these women who are assembling the space gloves, speaking about the pressure behind the work. Well, when they're up there in space, you know what parts you've worked on, and you just say, well, I hope that part don't fail because I'd feel it was my fault if it did. It really is something. It's it's so folksy. I mean, you, they're not all you know technicians in a lab, which is a little shocking. Yeah, I think it, it provides some heart to a documentary that I think could have possibly been really kind of technical and cold, just following you know the looking at the science and following the mission itself. Well, humans couldn't have gone to the moon without the efforts of all these people, um, and they didn't know what to expect or what could go wrong. What other kind of behind the scenes stuff do we see? Another part that I like is it's not necessarily behind the scenes, but it's uh, the moments where we where they're actually landing on the moon and we go to different places on Earth and just to kind of see people's reactions um, in different countries as they're they're watching and trying to understand what's happening on screen. And it's the sense of, you know, it's not just an American mission, but it's this kind of global community be re- being really excited about about this moment. Where else do they go? Uh, they, you know, they don't think they identify it in the movie, but they go places in Europe and they go places in Asia. Um, yeah, and there's some, pla- there's some sh- uh, shots in Africa as so well. So they have to have film crews in all those places. Yeah, I think that was one of the strategies is to do it quickly, just to spread out a bunch of filmmakers all over and... Um, and capture those moments. So besides showing that picture cinematically, I mean, this is what you look at, you know, what kind of techniques or aesthetic or style make Moonwalk one? It's it's very much a kitchen sink style. Uh, it's it's everything from they used a lot of archival footage, of course, the NASA footage. There's interviews. There's voiceover. There's uh, music. There's stage reenactments. It's really anything goes in this, and I think that that is one of the elements that gives it its kind of uh, frenetic, sometimes pretty trippy uh, feel to it. Trippy is yeah. one of the words that I think really applies. David Risha is my guest. He's assistant professor of film studies at Emory University's Oxford College. And we're talking about the 1971 film Moonwalk One, not really well known, but kind of a cult film now, which documented Apollo 11's trip to the moon. And it's going to air on GPB TV on Friday at nine. This is also the late 60s and early 70s. And it's looking at America at the time, portrayed with a variety of elements like shifts in tone and sound like you're talking of. Apollo 11, 15 July 1969, Cape Kennedy, Florida. The night before the great day. We're going to the moon together. Pack your bags and jump into the car. Gonna take a trip to tell you where you are. <laughs> this is also one of my favorite sequences in the movie. <laughs> kind of, you know, you're seeing scenes of crowds camping out, the night the, the nightlife, <laughs> the hoi polite. There's a very funny little bit of like Johnny Carson walking around just looking awkward. <laughs> so it's not just looking at the sky, but it's looking at our culture at the time. Which parts and or why does that matter? What did you see? You know, I think that one of the, first of all, I think it, it kind of makes it a little bit more kind of connected to society. Uh, it seems kind of more relevant, the movie, the fact that it has an understanding of what's going on at the time. But I think it, in, in watching the movie, it gives a, a stronger sense of disconnect once they actually leave 
earth, it's so silent and still. And I think that the filmmakers want to give that sense of like when they actually go into space, you get a sense that you're kind of floating up there with them. So I think giving a sense of kind of a loud, frenetic, you know, earth uh, it's like escaping that. the city and moving to the suburbs. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, that sequence has lots of, it's like people cooking French fries and like, you know, fast food signs and stuff. And I think that that, it's, it's hilarious because the song is really fantastic, but uh, it also gives a sense of, of, of difference once we leave the earth and, get, and go to the moon. Well, and that's another thing for me, realizing that this was the first time people saw that. I mean, you know, that shot of the moon, the big blue marble in space is so familiar to us now, but it was unknown at that time. Yeah, exactly right. Which is crazy. So there are um, more trippiness, I think, from the narrator Lawrence Luckinbill. Um, First of all, Lawrence Luckinbill, I think he later surfaced on Star Trek. Is that? I can't remember. Let's hear a little bit from the narrator. Within this tiny spacecraft, a temporary Earth environment, warmth, air, food, water, everything necessary to sustain life. Beyond these fragile walls, nothingness, absolute cold, an end to life. Kind of pumping up the drama there, certainly. But there are these beautiful scenes of Stonehenge at dawn and dusk. You know, likely symbolism of, you know, human achievement, maybe. But Moonwalk One was commissioned by NASA, and the in the film being... Informative is also pretty artsy and kind of esoteric. Was that surprising to you? It was, yeah. This kind of real poetic tone to the narration that fits really well with the the cinematography is really beautiful, especially of the takeoff, but also the when they're out in space, it's really fantastic. So it kind of catches that the two work together, these really beautiful images and this more t- poetic tone. The the Stonehenge sequence that you mentioned is also pretty interesting. It, the film starts off and ends with this kind of this kind of poetic examination of humanity and the goals of humanity that they then connect to the to the mission to the moon. A lot of reviewers at the time saw the connection between that and the beginning of 2001 A Space Odyssey, uh, the ape and bone sequence. Right, the um, Stanley Kubrick film. Exactly. Um, and and that, seems, that seems right to me too. But I think, it was, again, it was an attempt for the film to not just be about something that's super familiar to everybody, is to kind of branch out and to examine different elements of the um, of the mission. What year did 2001 A Space Odyssey come out? 1968. So just before that. Exactly. Well, as you mentioned, America had pretty much been saturated on space by the time this film came out, so it didn't blast off in the box office. And this is something that happens, a cycle that happens in American cinema. Can you explain that? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, one, one useful way of understanding uh, trends in media is this model of innovation, imitation, and saturation, where you have you know an artwork that innovates something. It could be aesthetically, or it could be there could be a technological innovation. And if, and if it's successful, especially if it's commercially successful, there's going to be imitators, right, that are going to want to capitalize on that. But eventually that imitation comes to an end because the, you know, the marketplace becomes saturated, it becomes old, it becomes tired. And I think that that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, people might have gotten a little tired of the of the space stories but now we see a resurgence so you know just in in terms of movies there's been movies like gravity and first man and arrival um all of these movies that are about space exploration so i think we're seeing a resurgence of, of interest in 
telling space stories. And I think part of the reason is that we've, over the last 30 years, there have been leaps and bounds in terms of CGI technology. And now we have really fantastic new ways to visualize space and to explore space. And if you look, take a look at a film like Gravity, it's just so visually fascinating. So I think that that might be part of this re-examination of, of space travel in, in movies. I'm, I'm thinking of those early, like, Buck Rogers, where <laughs> you can almost see the hand guiding the, the spaceship. The, the string on top of the, yeah, the flying saucer. We've come a long way. But the movie still is not very well known. So what, what do you think, kind of legacy-wise, Moonwalk 1 has? Um, I think that it'll be more of a cultural document. I think just to kind of take a look at how broadly the world was responding to the moon landing rather than an actual document. I know that Theo Kamek also directed a part of his camera crew, don't look at the launch, look at the face of the spectators. And that is an amazing thing in itself, you know, seeing that reaction on people's faces. Yeah, to, and when, you're, when I'm watching it now, to live vicariously through that moment where there's so much you know, excitement, but also going into the unknown, you really get that sense of excitement from, from those reaction shots. Yeah, made it a little fresh to me, which is really nice. For sure. Especially during this moon week. <laughs> <laughs> David Risha, thank you so much for talking with us about this. It's a pleasure. David Risha is Assistant Professor of Film Studies at Emory University's Oxford College with a focus on documentary film history and aesthetics. And we've been talking about the 1971 film Moonwalk One, which documented the behind-the-scenes work of Apollo 11. GB is going to be airing the documentary this Friday, July 19th at 9 p.m. And we're going to leave you with another clip from Moonwalk One. But stay with us. After the break, we'll speak with Tiffany Davis. She's an aerospace engineer, rocket scientist, and Georgia Tech grad. That's when On Second Thought returns. No up or down, no day or night. Only the slow creeping of the harsh sunlight through the windows as the spacecraft rotates to keep from getting too hot on one side, too cold on the other. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. You're going to be hearing and seeing a lot this week about the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. Well, we're focusing on Georgia connections to this amazing historical feat along with the future of space exploration and some changemakers reaching for the stars and beyond. Tiffany Davis is one of them. She's an aerospace engineer. You may have seen her on your timeline with the hashtag, Yes, I am a rocket scientist. That hashtag went viral in 2016 after Tiffany posted it on her Instagram page, announcing her graduation from Georgia Institution of Technology. Among her more earthbound accomplishments, her plea to make college more affordable caught the attention of then-President Obama. Well, Tiffany has since interned and been hired at Boeing's Mission Operations and Engineering Group in Washington, D.C., and she's joining me from D.C. to talk about her illustrious career. Thanks for joining us. No problem. I'm happy to be here. So what does a rocket scientist look like? Uh, it looks like me. So <laughs> it can look like anybody that's interested in space or astronomy or just learning how things work and how to get them from the ground up into the air. Well, you did earn a bachelor's degree and working on a master's from Georgia Tech. Why did you choose to major in aerospace engineering? 
So since I was a young girl, I was always interested in understanding and learning how things work. I was the type of girl that would beg my parents to go to Radio Shack instead of Toys R Us. And I was also like the person that would take apart my Game Boy and try to figure out <laughs> if I could put it back together. You were a <laughs> nerd in the making. <laughs> I was a nerd, and I'm happy to say it. I'm proud about it. And at a cer certain point, it kind of clicked to me very young that aerospace and just learning how to get things from the ground and make them fly or make them orbit or shoot them to the moon. I was really interested in that, and, I, and that's what I decided to pursue as my career. Well, Georgia Tech is a great place for it. Ranks number four Absolutely. in best undergraduate engineering programs. How did your education there translate into what you're doing there today? So Georgia Tech has a very challenging and inspiring engineer program. Um, not only the academic curriculum as well, but their research department. And once I learned that I really wanted to work for Boeing, who was the number one aerospace company in the world, I was like, okay, I got to prepare for this internship. I got to grasp all this knowledge and get the practical experience. So when I show up at Boeing, I can outperform. So I actually joined Georgia Tech's research group, specifically working on structural analysis for airplanes planes and different spacecraft systems and I did a research for an entire semester under a professor and by the time I got to my internship at Boeing I completely blew away my mentors and my team leads um, so much so that I was invited back for a second internship the next summer. That was my summers in my sophomore and junior year of undergraduate and my senior year they offered me to join a prestigious rotational program that they have for early career engineers so I did that full-time my first two years out of college and since then I've been relocated to the Washington DC area to continue my career in so aerospace. What are you doing in aerospace now? So right now I'm working as a spacecraft control engineer and what that means is pretty much I'm responsible for the health of different vehicles that are in orbit right now. So just like you have a baby at home and it has a temperature or it may be starting to walk or maybe it's walking a little slow, I'm responsible for checking that temperature, making sure the spacecraft has all its antennas out and it's functioning properly, it's communicating with us well and we can communicate with it as well. So each day I go into work and I kind of run a check or a diagnostic um, test on the spacecraft to make sure it's functioning properly. Is it getting too close to the sun? Is it too out of orbit? Is it overheating? in certain parts so pretty much that's what I do I just um, I'm responsible for checking on that uh, state of health for different spacecraft in orbit that's a huge job for somebody just a couple of years out of school do you <laughs> yes absolutely I love the responsibility um, just like you mentioned, uh, not a lot of early career engineers or early career um, individuals get this type of responsibility. So I'm particularly proud and happy that Bowen has entrusted me with this type of responsibility and technical challenge. Well, I have to call back to earlier in your career because you get things done. I mean, you played a part <laughs> in getting former President Barack Obama to visit your alma mater, Georgia Tech. This was in 2015 to talk about college affordability. And you introduced him. Here's a little clip from his speech. So I want to thank Tiffany for stepping in. Uh, what she did not mention is that her letter to me uh, was not just to express her concern about student loans. She said in her letter, she said, uh, it was also to procrastinate from doing her thermodynamics homework. 
That is President <laughs> Barack Obama speaking at Georgia Tech. He is talking about Tiffany Davis, who's my guest. She's an aerospace engineer, and she is the originator of the hashtag, Yes, I Am a Rocket Scientist, among other things. But first, like, how did this happen? He, he said that your letter to him, what was that letter and what did you say? Yeah, so just to set the stage, I'm the type of person that always writes a letter or speak up if I have any concerns. So if I didn't get enough ranch with my wings or if Southwest didn't give me enough cookies on my flight, I, I'm going to write a letter <laughs> or send someone some note of about it. So one night I was like <laughs> Obama procrastinating. Said, I, was pro- I was procrastinating my homework and it was about three in the morning. And I started to get this down tunnel, you know, barrel mind thinking like, okay, I'm never going to finish this homework. So I'm never going to graduate from school and I'm never going to pay back these student loans I have. And I just started spinning out of control. And then I calmed myself and I said, hey, I'm going to school for aerospace engineering. So I'm going to be able to pay back my student loans because fortunately that job pays well. And then I started thinking about people such as my parents and my grandparents that are in different industries such as um, education or social services where their industries may not pay as much. So it's not affordable for them to go to college or to pay back those loans for those type of degrees. And that made me upset. And I needed someone to complain to or write a letter about it. So I was like, okay, I'm going to write Obama (laughs) a letter because obviously that's the great greatest choice at 3 a.m. Um, so at that time, the White House had a online, basically, text box where you could just email the White House mm-hmm. and it would go somewhere. Sure. So I was like, sure, I'm going to spend 30 minutes of my time just typing out all my grievances against college affordability in America. I pressed send and I was just done with it. <laughs> I didn't think about it. And, and then you get yeah. a call from the White House. Absolutely. What they say? Yeah. So on this block call, someone says, hey, my name is Vincent and I'm from the White House. We read your letter and we want President Obama to read it today. Because yeah. he reads what he gets thousands <laughs> of letters, but he chooses he chose right. a couple a day to read. Absolutely. So yeah, what so did you say? I was like, can someone proofread it? Because <laughs> I didn't even proofread it. I just typed it in and sent it. Um, but of course, I said, yes, please let him read it. And they called back the next day and said, oh, he really enjoyed your letter. He would like to send a response letter. You know, where can we send that letter? And I was like, please send it to my mom's house. Don't mm. even send it to college. <laughs> Um, And in that letter was very surprising because he talked about how both he and Michelle also had student loans at that time while they still were in the White House. They both had student loans from their law school days and how he's actively working to make college more affordable. And he really cares about college affordability. So I was just blown away with that. All right. I got to fast forward to he Mm -hmm. came to Georgia Tech. He introduced his student bill of rights there. You introduced him as we heard. Well, you've continued your advocacy work and some level in 2018, you launched a mentorship program aimed to provide resources and, you know, helping prepare and increase the number of minorities in the STEM field. How about you? Did you have role models or programs like that when you were younger? Um, So when I grew up, I had parents that were in non-technical backgrounds, and I absolutely didn't have anyone in my community or my family that looked like me and was also in the aerospace field. And that was very... um, discouraging for me. So that's 
kind of one of my intentions and my ambitions to be that beacon or that template that other young girls or young boys can use to say, hey, she looks like us. We can be like her, too. So how do you prepare them for this kind of field? So my mentorship program is a five-stage program where I take these young, young kids in and I talk to them about what they're interested in, what their skills are, and I see how that can align with different opportunities in the STEM field. And from there, we hit the ground running with resume writing, mock interviews, getting them applying for internships and different college applications and grants. So really just preparing them for what the real world is, both in terms of academics and STEM career opportunities. Okay, so that's 2018 you launched that. What kind of feedback have you had from it so far? It's been amazing. I'm, I'm just so overjoyed that I have this type of response, both from young girls, young guys, and their parents as well. It just seems like there was a need that is now being met by my services, and it's something that I enjoy doing, something that I feel like is a calling for me. I, I'm really enjoying it. You told us, Tiffany, that you asked for more ranch dressing if you want it, <laughs> more <laughs> cookies. But what, what else do you want to tell young people? Um, I know you've worked with girls who code, so young girls, mm -hmm. especially like you, an African-American girl, maybe didn't have the kind of models that others mm -hmm. have. What would you tell them that it takes to be successful and to move forward like you have? It takes some... Um a type of ambition and determination to know that you're going into a field where there's not a lot of people that look like you and some people will doubt that you belong there because there's not that representation of you already in that field so it will be times where you feel like you have to prove yourself or you may not belong but just understand that you have a purpose and you have an intention and practice makes perfect once you put in that work and once you put in that effort know that you do belong there that you do deserve to be there and you're gonna crush it we are, of course, having a conversation this week about the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11 moon landing. How does it feel to know that history in essentially making new history for the next generation of scientists, will there ever be anything as big as the Apollo moon landing was for basically the boomer generation? Absolutely. I do believe the 50 year anniversary is a great time because we're celebrating this pivotal moment in history, especially in aerospace history, where we had this um, accomplishment of getting on the moon. But I think that was just the beginning for us. I actually hope to be one of the first people that walk on the surface of Mars one day. And I think that's exactly where we're going with capabilities being developed at Boeing, such as the SLS, which is the space launch system, our heavy lift rocket that's going to take us to the moon and Mars and eventually beyond that. Well, entering your career, were you expected to or did you feel like you were responsible for innovating something new? I mean, if you go into aerospace now, is the idea, this is where we're headed, this is the trajectory to Mars? Absolutely. That's what's hot and what's new in aerospace as well. And especially as a millennial, you have that creativity, that innovation, that drive that you want to make something new, something that's, you know, different from what has been done in the past. So absolutely, people want to go to Mars, people want to mine asteroids, people want to set up amusement parks in space. That's that's exactly what we want to do. It's kind of like the last um, frontier out there, something that's never been explored and doesn't really have a flag, you know, pent on it yet. So. Well, there is a, such a big deal when we were engaged in the space race. The United mm -hmm. States was engaged in the space race in the 1960s with Russia. You know, the Soviet Union at that time was was pitched against us in this battle of, you know, one step forward by one, then the other follows, then the other follows. And, of course, the U.S. triumphantly mm -hmm. on the moon first. 
What is motivating it? What is pushing it forward now? I think what's pushing it forward now that it's more of a global conversation with uh, capabilities such as the International Space Station, where there is no political or national boundaries, really. It's just people that want to go to the next level in space. I'm sure you're familiar with the 2016 film Hidden Figures. Did you see mm-hmm. that? So yes, back, ma'am. back in the 50s and 60s, women yeah, of color were hidden. Mm-hmm. They weren't part of the team or not acknowledged as such. So now you are one of these young women of color working in the industry. Mm -hmm. How do you look back at those women who came before you? I am astounded, honestly, and it makes me a little sad because I honestly did not know about them until I saw those films and kind of did my own research. So they were truly hidden, even for someone that actually works in the field and are in their same shoes. Um, I thank them for setting the the groundwork and paving the way for someone like me to prove that, hey, someone in this position or from this background or this gender can actually do this amazing work in this field. And it kind of leads me to kind of carry that torch into the future and especially for generations after me to keep moving the pace and keep um, making the next level higher and higher. Have, Have you started to see more people who look like you in your field? So each day gets better, but I would say it's still not enough. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that's something I'm working on um, actively by doing different speaking engagements and also my mentorship programs to make it aware that, hey, these are opportunities in this field for people that do look like me. Well, okay. so if you have a young girl who, like you, you know, wants to pick apart her Game Boy, I suppose (laughs) it wouldn't be a Game Boy anymore, Mm -hmm. but, you know, pick apart her toys and start to sort of mess around with computers Mm -hmm. and look at how things work. There's a lot of pressure on girls to, you know, well, that's not feminine. When you're speaking to kids, what do you say? What do you say to encourage them to think differently about their future? I would say your life does not have to be binary. Women are not black and white. We can be many different things. We're multiverse, multidimension. And I'm not one thing. I'm not just an engineer, but I also was a track athlete. I was a basketball athlete. I was prom queen. I was all that in one. I didn't have to pick and choose between what society wants me to be and what I feel like I am. Uh, Somehow I can imagine that, Tiffany, you doing it all. (laughs) But a huge challenge in front of us as a a culture, as a world, experiencing Mm -hmm. ongoing political divides on war, climate change debates. This list goes on and on. You know, so some people say, let's focus on what's going on on the earth. What do you say to them when they say, you know, why should we be funding rockets to Mars when there are so many things to deal with here? Absolutely. And I would recommend them to look what has come from when we actually do these space experiments. Something like uh, osteoporosis medicine, um, where you're looking at the bone decay and how the bone acts differently in space. We were able to diagnose that and treat that by looking at how astronauts bone decay in space under no gravity environment. Well, I had no idea. I just thought mm-hmm. we came away with Tang. Nope, nope. Plenty of inventions <laughs> come from space and us going up there with limited resources and figuring out a, made, a way to make it work. And that ends up creating some type of innovation or product that we can bring back to Earth to make other people's life easier or more healthy. All right. For the record, I was joking about Tang. But I'm so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> pleased to, to learn more from you today. Tiffany Davis, thank you very much. No problem. Thank you. Tiffany Davis, she's a rocket scientist and Boeing aerospace engineer. And earlier we mentioned the contributions of mathematicians and hidden figures like Mary Jackson, Katherine Johnson, and Dorothy Vaughn. While NASA recently named the street in front of its headquarters in D.C., Hidden Figures Way, to honor the legacy of those women who played a major role in the space race. 
Tiffany, thinking something might be named after you one day. <laughs> I do hope so. Well, as we head into the break, we're going to leave you with a little bit of Sun Ra. This is Rocket Number 9. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. And we're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Consuming political news is like drinking from a fire hose. Each day, a new tweet, a new storyline, and a new thing to take in. It can be exhausting, and often these national conversations obscure important topics like our fundamental right to vote. Well, we here at On Second Thought want to shift that paradigm with something we're calling slow democracy. Like the slow food movement, we're looking at the sources and alterations and underpinnings of participatory democracy. And we're starting with the legal system governing fair elections. Big topic in our state. Today, GPB Politics reporter Stephen Fowler joins me for a look at the machinations that affect how we vote. Hello, Stephen. Good morning. Well, let's set the stage here. Georgia mirrors the federal model, three branches of government, executive legislative and judicial. So to be clear, governor, state house and Senate and courts, all three play a role with voting in elections. And here is Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger from an earlier interview you did talking about his perspective. We don't want to become a, a top-down ogre like sometimes the federal government is to Georgia, but we want to make sure that we're helping our you know friends out there at the county level. Well, so what does the secretary mean when he talks about the executive part of Georgia's elections? So, Virginia, the executive part is the secretary of state's office, and it's a state government agency. And uh, the ogre that Secretary Raffensperger is talking about is we have one secretary of state's office. We have 159 counties. And so the secretary of state's office is where, you know, all of the filings and the fees and the like the big picture organization comes with these elections. And we have the different county elections officials and local elections and local things run. So it'll be a little bit different in each county, depending on who's elected to fill those things and how they do things and how many people they have. And so the executive part is kind of there to keep things within the bumpers uh, to keep things rolling down and to troubleshoot any problems that people have and to provide the top level administration of here is the big sandbox you can play in with elections and here's specific rules. And it's up to the counties to be able to actually enforce them and run things and do the day-to-day business. All right, so then where do we find the guidelines for running what goes on in that sandbox and election? How do we know what to follow to make sure things are running smoothly? and correctly. We know, Virginia, there are a lot of documents out there. There's a lot of rules. There's a lot of regulations. There's the state election code, which you can find in the larger Georgia code. It spells out everything from qualifying fees to run for office to how old you can be to run for a certain office to everything from, you know, if, you know, if it rains on a second Thursday, then you do things this way. There's not actually something in there about raining on a second Thursday, but there's that level of detail that has to trickle down from the state government level to the local and county officials. So you've got the state election code, you've got guidelines that are sent out by the Secretary of State's office, and you have a lot of things that even are posted in polling places on election day to say, here is what you need to bring, here is how you need to do it, here's where to go if you have questions. 
All right. So let's transition to the legislative side of things, because it was big news this session when lawmakers approved HB 316. That authorized the state to purchase new voting machines. Also made a number of changes to the state election code. Here's Republican Representative Barry Fleming of Harlem, co-sponsor of this year's big voting legislation, chair of the Secure Accessible Fair Elections Commission. He's speaking here last December about the public's relationship with the legislature. We will have public input through our hearing process. We will have experts come and testify uh, before the legislature. So really they will have a chance to hear again almost everything the Safe Commission has heard. So walk us through the legislature's responsibilities in interaction with the electoral system and infrastructure. So we just talked about the state election code. That has to be passed and tweaked by the state legislature. So the Secretary of State's office and the executive side is kind of there for enforcing it. But the legislature is the one that has to write it and craft it and go through the process of hearings and finding things out. The safe commission that was mentioned, that was something that the Secretary of State's office did. It includes lawmakers and local county officials and kind of bundled it all together where you had all the different parts and pieces and the public to kind of uh, show how all of the different uh, pieces play together to figure out how these new voting machines, this new system would work together. So the legislature is the one that had to say in HB 316, we authorize the state of Georgia to pick XYZ types of machines that do ABC things. And then they're also the ones that had to say in the budget, we authorize the state to spend this amount of money to uh, pay for these new machines and do the training. So they're the ones that kind of uh, write the checks and balances, see what I did there, to make sure things go correctly for the state to then oversee. All right. So we are not, as most voters, walking in there thinking, reading all of the code, you know, absorbing all of that kind of information, but we're interacting with the machines. So as you've reported, lawmakers are very close to selecting a new system that will be ready for New Year's, the next year election. Who is actually picking them? So it's through the official state purchasing uh, contracting part. There's a manual for that. So it's not somebody just in a back office going eeny, meeny, miny, mo with our electoral future. There's very specific rules and guidelines for uh, the calls for the contract, the documents that have to be provided, the checks that have to be done, the timeline that has to be followed. So, you know, all of those documents are there. They're not exciting to read. But if you have questions about who's picking these voting machines, and what guidelines they have to follow, it's all spelled out there for you. It's not the most accessible thing to read, but that's why you and I are having these conversations here uh, to pick the guidelines. So the Secretary of State's office works with the Department of Purchasing and everything to make sure that a fair contracting process is gone through. And then at the end, we're almost at the part where they announce the award. So they announce that we are going with X company to do our voting machines, and here's the plan, and here's how much we're paying. And the citizens have played an important part throughout the entire way. They gave feedback to the legislature. They've given feedback to the Secretary of State's office. There have been lots of uh, hearings and petitions. And, you know, it's a very participatory system, even if it doesn't feel the most accessible, but that's kind of by design of all of the government, you know, documents and contracts and things that have to go through. All right, let's get to the meat of today's topic, which is the judicial branch. Organizations and individuals can file lawsuits to get the court's opinion on certain election-related laws and decisions. We've heard a lot about that. Here's voting rights nonprofit group Fair Fight CEO Lauren Gro-Wargo. 
but the actions and inactions of the state of Georgia that have led to the systematic suppression of the votes of all people, in particular voters of color, will not stop. We will keep fighting. And we should note that the founder of that organization is Stacey Abrams. Grow Wargo was her longtime campaign manager. So before we delve into specific cases and questions, when do courts get involved in the electoral process? So you can't just file a lawsuit and say, I lost the election. I, you know, I demand that the court change that or I demand a recount. Going back to the state code and the legislative and the executive side of things, there are certain rules and regulations for when recounts or redos or any sort of action can be taken. So in the cases of uh, recounts or something like that, if it's within a certain thing, it automatically happens. Sometimes people can file suit for that. Uh, In the case of, you know, on Election Day, there were long lines and there were some machines malfunctioning and other things like that. Um, people will go to the courts and get an emergency order and say, can you keep this polling place open 30 more minutes because the first 30 minutes the doors were locked. People like citizens can do that or somebody representing them? Well, you know, a lawyer, somebody who can file things before the court. But, you know, people who are affected by that, you know, somebody in Minnesota can't file a lawsuit, say, hey, keep that polling place open. You know, right. It has to be here in Georgia. But then when it comes to the laws, uh, you know, the uh, pending list of pending voters or the exact match system, the judicial system can, uh, you know, basically you ask the courts to weigh in on the constitutionality and legality of laws and decisions that are made. So the courts, uh, it's not asking, filing a lawsuit, asking the court's opinion on something isn't automatically saying that something is right or wrong, but there are certain parameters as to what can be challenged. And as we see now, there are a number of lawsuits challenging certain things and arguments are being made for the legality and the questions surrounding how some of the decisions are made. We're doing some slow democracy today with Stephen Fowler. He's a reporter here at GPB and has been reporting on uh, what's going on in the fair elections fight. But we're we're doing a little bit part civics lesson, a little bit breakdown of government. Oftentimes people complain about things work and how they do or don't work. And we're getting a little sense, digging into peeling back the layers and seeing how they do or they are ideally supposed to. Can you, Stephen, give us examples of the court actually changing the way election laws work, whether it be the outcome of an election or any other scenarios? Well, sure. If you look back to last November's very drawn out, very contentious gubernatorial election, you had a series of court rulings about how to count absentee and provisional ballots. So uh, people filed suit saying, you know, this county did not properly count absentee ballots or their provisional ballots that need counting and something like that. And a judge weighed in and said, you have, uh, you know, this county, you have until next week to count these things. So it extended the deadline for some of the things. Recently, we had a few lawsuits dismissed because of changes to a law that came in HB 316 and other elections, um, other election law changes that happened where the court didn't say, okay, this has to change, but the lawsuit was dismissed because the parties who filed the suit said, okay, I filed the suit the state changed its law. Now I'm happy with how this works. So there are numerous examples of, you know, the courts, maybe if not directly saying you must change this thing, but the lawsuit being filed and the process, because it's a long, drawn out process of hearing both sides, 
things get changed. Well, it's like two cases now working their way through the courts. One says that the state's current outdated voting machines are not secure and that the state should use hand-marked paper ballots for future elections. District Court Judge Amy Totenberg is hearing that case. What are some possible outcomes that she could legally prescribe? Well, what they're asking for in this hand-marked paper ballots case is to change the way Georgia runs its elections for the upcoming November elections. And so it is possible that the judge could say, you know, these machines are a security risk. You must conduct the November elections using hand-marked paper ballots with these certain steps involved for, you know, people who need a touchscreen machine for disability purposes or other things. Um, there are very specific remedies that the court can provide. It's not just, yep, use paper ballots, figure it out yourself. There's a lot of steps and checks and balances there. It could be possible that the judge could say, again, it's too close to the election. They're about to implement these new machines. You know, we'll make sure that the new machines and new systems include boom, boom, boom things. So really, uh, there's a hearing next week in that case, and we will know more after the two-day hearing. The case was brought against the state. So what is the state's argument here? Well, one of the state's argument, like I said, Virginia, is that it's too close to the elections and it's too close to how things are done. And so, uh, you know, they're making the argument that it would be an undue burden to make the state completely change the way everything works last minute. Uh, Additionally, one of the arguments is that these new voting machines are about to happen. They're about to be implemented. People are going to be trained. They're more up to date. They're more secure. So this lawsuit is kind of irrelevant. The judge has not dismissed the case yet. So she thinks that there are some merits to the argument. But the state says, we're going to fix this anyways. Let us fix this. Let us do our jobs. The other lawsuit you've been following deals with a much more, let's say, existential voting issues. Stacey Abrams Fair Fight Group and others allege several violations of the Federal Civil Rights Act with the way that Georgia runs its election. So give us a big picture judicial landscape there. Well, big picture, several years ago, uh, a ruling, Shelby County versus Holder, changed the way certain states were able to make changes to how elections were run. It removed a provision that would allow certain jurisdictions, they would have to get permission from the federal government to change things. So now the state has changed things without the federal oversight. And this big sweeping lawsuit says basically big picture, the way Georgia elections are run violates several amendments to the Constitution and needs to be changed and checked. So what does all of this mean for our democracy? Does it change how you and I go about our days? It does, because voting is an important part of our democracy, and how we vote is an important part of that. If people don't feel that they have uh, secure, accessible, fair elections, like that commission was named, then maybe they won't vote, or maybe they don't think their vote will count, and then fewer and fewer people will participate in things. Uh, But also, all of this is out there. There are documents, there's rules and regulations, and asking questions is important because not everything makes sense. It's not like you turn on a computer, uh, open up the Internet, and say how to vote, and it's all there. So it's important to ask questions and push back when there are things that are confusing and don't make sense. And uh, for things like this, this conversation to happen, to kind of break things down where people have maybe a little bit more trust in how their vote works. Well, now that you have explained that to us, I feel like we've eaten our vegetables. Now we have some dessert, a little legislative palate cleanser on something that you might have missed. (laughs) 
current Georgia code contains a statute that penalizes people for scratching serial numbers off of machinery, washing and sewing machines, firearms and vacuum cleaners and such. Well, this spring, Representative Josh McLaurin introduced a bill that would scrub a few items off that list. Things McLaurin proposed as anachronistic, dictaphones, adding machines, comptometers and gasp phonographs. Vinyl junkies and sellers across the state cried foul. The 31-year-old Democrat from Sandy Springs told Eleven Alive that he listens to music on his computer, though he does have some friends who collect LPs. We're assuming not all of his friends are club DJs. In fact, vinyl album sales have been growing steadily for 13 consecutive years. 16.8 million were sold in 2018. That's according to Nielsen's tracking. And if you have to play them on something... Well, you may not have that old wind-up model McLaurin says he's targeting. And talk about anachronisms. Which band sold the most records in the age of streaming music? The Beatles. On top again. Stephen, Representative McLaurin took quite a ribbing from Georgia record store owners, did his bill to chuck phonographs into the ash heap of history pass. For the record, no. (laughs) Couldn't resist. Should we hold on to our dictaphones for the next great resurgence? Only time will tell. Well, GBB Stephen Fowler with some slow food-style democracy and some desserts. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All right, we're going to leave you with someone who knows from vinyl. Here is the adventures of Grandmaster Flash on the Wheels of Steel. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Leighton Rowell, LaRaven Taylor, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Nyswanger is our engineer. Allison Krausman is our intern. Don Smith, our dean of grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. Sarah Sharp. Ariari is Managing Editor for GPB News. I'm Virginia Prescott, inviting you to join the conversation on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. Are you curious about something that is happening in our democracy and you just don't know the process? Well, we have time for a little slow democracy from now and then, uh, now and again here on On Second Thought. All right, that's it for today. We're going to see you on the next spin. Grandmaster! Grandmaster! Thank you.